If you would, remain standing with me for the reading of God's word. It's come from Joshua, chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. This is God's word. Now it came about when all the kings of the Amorites, who were beyond the Jordan to the west, and all the kings of the Canaanites, who were by the sea, heard how the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan before the sons of Israel until they had crossed, that their hearts had melted and there was no spirit in them any longer because of the sons of Israel. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make for yourselves flint knives and circumcise again the sons of Israel the second time. So Joshua made himself flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeath Haerolah. This is the reason why Joshua circumcised them all the people who came out of Egypt who were males. All the men of war died in the wilderness along the way after they came out of Egypt. For all the people who came out were circumcised, but all the people who were born in the wilderness along the way as they came out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the sons of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all of the nation, that is, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not listen to the voice of the Lord, to whom the Lord had sworn that he would not let them see the land which the Lord had swore to their fathers to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. Their children whom he raised up in their place, Joshua, circumcised. For they were uncircumcised because they had not circumcised them along the way. Now when they had finished circumcising all the nation, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. While the sons of Israel camped at Gilgal, they observed the Passover on the evening of the 14th day of the month on the desert plains of Jericho. On the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. The manna ceased on the day, the manna ceased on the day after they had eaten some of the produce of the land, so that the sons of Israel no longer had manna, but they ate some of the yield of the land of Canaan during that year. Let's go before the Lord once again before we hear from him this morning. Our Lord and our God, we, we come now to hear. So I ask that you give us ears to hear and grant me the grace to communicate your word to these, your people, by the power of your spirit. For we are in desperate need, constantly, for your grace. Help us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we look at this historical narrative this morning, We'll work our way through the 12 verses, and I'm going to make application along the way, 
And then I want to conclude with, with what I believe is the heart of the passage. I'm sure you can tell it's a, a pleasant text. <laughs> but uh, we will proceed as we always do. So here now, um, as we continue our series in, in the book of Joshua, uh, many hundreds of thousands of Israelites have miraculously crossed the Jordan River on dry ground with all of their animals, all of their possessions, the covenant promise that God made with Abraham 400 years earlier was now a reality. Their feet are standing on the good land, flowing with milk and honey. Um, those cities that have been built, the wells that have been dug, the vineyards that have already been planted are promised to them. And the Canaanite kings are gripped by fear. Verse 1, now it came about when all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard, they heard how the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan before the sons of Israel until they had crossed, that their hearts melted. And there was no spirit in them any longer because of the sons of Israel. Now, verse 1 is, is a summary, really, um, recounting the events of chapters 3 and 4. Um, and, and that statement that we just read, uh, of course, that reaffirms the words of Rahab, Back in chapter 2, you recall, verse 10, we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and the two kings of the Amorites whom you utterly destroyed, when we heard it, our hearts melted, and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. The kings of Canaan were terrified of how Yahweh, the one true God Almighty, was leading and supporting the Israelites. Well, soon we get to chapter 6, they lock themselves in the city. They're scared to death. Now, to commemorate the miraculous crossing, which we looked at last Lord's Day, they were to form a memorial, that formation of a memorial, 12 memorial stones that were taken out of the Jordan, that was not something the people initiated. That was a mandated memorial commanded of them by God through the mediation of Joshua. One applicable lesson there, just right out of the gate this morning, that we didn't really focus on last Lord's Day, but that is this, memorials are a wonderful thing, amen? Provided that they do not become religious idols that turn our hearts from God. 
provided that they do not link us um, to the past so much that we fail to serve God in the present. Very important applicable point because Satan loves nothing more than to tempt us into worshiping the wrong thing, the wrong person. Traditions of men um, over time have developed where worship is, is given to icons, to relics, to saints, and to Mary, the mother of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, because we're reformed evangelicals, we'll point out the folly of those practices. Amen? However, in certain evangelical circles, uh, we can revere certain theologians, teachers, and preachers to a dangerous and even um, idolatrous degree. So we need to take heed as well, amen? And therefore, we're regularly directed, or I should say redirected, true to the true worship of Almighty God. That is, the one true God through his one and only mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're reminded of this continually as we study uh, whether it's the New Testament or the Old. So here now we begin with a new subject in verse 2. At that time, what time? Having crossed the Jordan, having erected this memorial, the waters returned to their place. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make for yourself flint knives and circumcise again the sons of Israel the second time. Now, of course, circumcision was a sign of God's covenant with Israel. And it's not that these men are being circumcised again, um, circumcised again or a second time simply refers to the fact that, that all of the men of Israel who came out of Egypt were indeed circumcised when they left, uh, but that exercise stopped during their wilderness wanderings of 40 years. So the practice of circumcision here is being reinstituted, that is a second time, instituted a second time. Verses four and five um, provide the explanation. This is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the people who came out of Egypt, who were males, all the men of war, died in the wilderness along the way after they came out of Egypt. For all the people who came out were circumcised. But all the people who were born in the wilderness along the way as they came out of Egypt had not been circumcised. Now again, I've said this numerous times, every time we study the Old Testament actually, uh, but, but again, the New Testament gives us implicit instructions, or I should say explicit instructions of how we are to read Old Testament narratives. And that is as learning for us, as learning for us that we might have hope and remain faithful to the one true God. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 15 and verse 4, for whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction. So that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. The apostle Paul was right. 
We learn from Israel that you can experience the exodus, you can eat manna in the wilderness, you can drink water from the rock in that wilderness, bear the sign of the covenant, and remain in unbelief. Look at our earlier text, 1 Corinthians 10. Verse 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud, in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them. The rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. They didn't make it in to the promised land. You go on to read, we see that their idolatry, their immorality, and their grumbling put Christ to the test. Verse 9. They, they tried the Lord and, and they were destroyed. So the, the generation of Israelites that experienced God's miraculous deliverance out of, the, uh, out of Egypt, his provision of manna, of water, did not enter. Verse 6, Joshua 5, For the sons of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, that is, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished. Why? Because they did not listen to the voice of the Lord. Although they bore the mark of the covenant, right? They'd been circumcised, but they did not listen to the voice of Yahweh. Warning. You can receive the sacrament and have no faith. You can come to the church and have no faith. Look at verse 11, 1 Corinthians 10. These things happened to them as an example. And they were written for our instruction. Upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, uh, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. Most of Israel, we read, were laid low. They fell in the wilderness in unbelief. And if you've been a Christian long enough... You have or you will see many fall from the faith. The New Testament tells us that repeatedly. To fall away from the faith. Now the solution is not to think. I've heard people say this. How could Israel do that? How could they not believe? How could they not listen to the voice of God? Take heed if you think you stand. Let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. That's not the solution to say it'll never happen to me. Amen? As I prayed earlier, all those that God justifies, he will glorify. He will glorify. He will preserve his people to the end. But again, one of the means of preservation is our prayer of perseverance. To persevere. Lord, that's, I pray constantly, Lord, help me to persevere. 
I've told some of you, I believe that I'm in ministry is God's means of grace to keep me in the faith. I just don't trust myself. But by God's grace, I do trust him. Amen? Israel was a covenant nation. Israel was the covenant nation, a a privilege given to no other nation on earth, the nation through whom our Lord Jesus Christ would come. And he has come. God first gave his covenant promise to their forefather, Abraham, calling him out of Ur of the Chaldees, Genesis chapter 12. There were no Jewish people. There were no Hebrew people. God made them a people. Amen? He made them a people. He sealed that covenant with the sacrifice of Genesis 15, swearing is Matthew pointed out this morning in Sunday school by himself that he will see to it that his promises will come to pass. Those he calls, he keeps. Now, as a sign of this covenant, God gave circumcision to Abraham and all of his descendants. Look at it in Genesis 17 and verse 11. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you. And every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised throughout your generations. Look, it is through the male reproductive organ that disseminates the seed to all of humanity without exception, that is, in Adam, the sinful nature is passed on. So there's a cutting back of that which disseminates the sinful seed. Now, the sign itself availed nothing. It had to be accompanied by faith in the one true God who initiated the covenant, making circumcision God's brand, if you will, that is his visible mark of ownership upon his people. Sign of the covenant. The the physical cutting back of the foreskin was intended to be a symbol of a greater operation. The heart. Apologize to some of you parents, you have some explaining to do on the way home today. (laughs) That's your job. Look at Deuteronomy 10 and verse 12. Now Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways and love him, and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart. So circumcise your heart. And stiffen your neck no longer. For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords. See, this sign reminded Israel that God had cut them out from the world and they are now his special possession. See that in Exodus 19. And that they would be cut off from his blessing if they unrepentantly broke covenant with God. Genesis 17. Now, over time, as you know, 
the Jews began to trust in the external sign of the covenant rather than God of the covenant. John the Baptist, when he called the leaders of Israel to repent, what did they say? We have Abraham as our father. Paul battled the Judaizers who, who saw circumcision, circumcision as, as some meritorious act. Look what he says when he writes to the, Rome, the church in Rome. Romans chapter 2, verse 28. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men. That's what they loved. But from God. Okay, which is to say circumcision um, in itself was not salvific. It was not salvific. That the ceremony, the rite, the symbol, the sign, it doesn't save. It never did. There were many members of the community of Israel who had no relationship with Yahweh, and they're in hell right now. But they bore the sign. It's not unlike those today who, who think they're saved. They think they're going to heaven because they've been baptized. They think they're going to heaven because they partake of the Lord's table regularly. They think they're going to heaven because they said some prayer 13 and a half years ago. But there's no fruit of them walking in Christ today. You may be members in a church, God's flock, and have no personal relationship with the shepherd. Not unlike Israel. Therefore, these things were written for our instruction, for our learning. Israel was given from God the sign of circumcision, and the covenant meal known as Passover. Two things that were to be exercised, but merely practicing the, these prescribed ordinances does not save a sinner. Amen? However, this is a big however, all caps. However, that does not mean that the exercise of those practices are optional. The signs that God established with Israel were not to be shirked, avoided, dodged. Baptism and the Lord's Supper for God's new covenant people are not to be shirked. They're not to be avoided. They're not to be ignored. They're not to be viewed as being unimportant. God says they are. You know, some Christians reason like this. You know, I, I have God in my heart. You know, I don't really pay any stock with regard to signs. You know, I'm after the reality. Wrong thinking. Wrong thinking. Uh, um, Moses apparently thought that way for a spell. <laughs> Shirking the sign of circumcision for his son. Exodus 4. Turn to Exodus 4. You remember this when we were in Exodus, I hope. 
We spent some time on this. Okay, context, Exodus 4. Moses is 80 years old. He's been watching sheep under his father-in-law Jethro for 40 of those years. While he was watching sheep, Yahweh called him into service by way of the burning bush. God says, you're going to lead my people out of Egypt. So he's on his way to lead God's people out of Egypt. Along with him, he has his wife Zipporah and his two sons. Now, in this text of Exodus 4, we see uh, an aspect of God's sovereignty that is described. You're the one I'm calling to lead my people out. I'm sovereign. I'm Lord. I'm going to destroy much of Egypt on your way out. So a divine promise is given. He heads that way, and his mission is interrupted by disobedience at a rest stop along the way because at least one of his sons is not circumcised. Verse 24. Now, it came about at the lodging place on the way that the Lord met him, Moses, and sought to put him, Moses, to death. I believe he's talking about Moses, not his son. Then Zipporah, she knew what was going on. This is a discerning wife right here. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin, threw it at Moses' feet and said, you're indeed a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. God let him alone. At that time, she said, you are a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Because of the circumcision. So Moses, apparently incapacitated, sickly, stricken with some deathly illness that God struck him with. You know, we look at this and we think, well, this is very, this is an unreasonable intrusion. God calls the man, he gets up and he goes. He said, God sent him off. I mean, this dude's 80 years old. Leave the guy alone. I mean, Moses left in obedience. He's trusting God. And then God strikes him with some illness. He's on his deathbed. Well, this is something we did not know about Moses all through Exodus until you come to this part of chapter 4. And he's neglected to carry out his duty as a father and have his son circumcised. He knew this because long before Moses... We read this in Genesis 17. Look at it. Verse 14. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. That is, if my covenant sign is not applied, they'll be cut off. <laughs> is God serious about signs? Do signs save? No, they do not. Is he still serious about signs? Yes. This is a non-negotiable. 
An uncircumcised Jew is an oxymoron. It's the sign of God's covenant for his people. Applicable point. The the administration of God's prescribed ordinances, his ceremonies, are a priority for God's people. They're a priority for God's people. So regardless of our circumstances, the practice of God's mandated ordinances must always be applied. Moses had no choice in the matter. He wasn't given the option to to shirk this responsibility until a more convenient time. I mean, after all, I'm en route to Egypt. God stops him in his tracks. Now, the Israelites here in Joshua could have said, you know, let's first do the mop-up exercise of Jericho once you destroy it, Lord, speaking to Joshua, his mediator in the matter. And then, you know, once we have peace and we have nothing else on the schedule, you know, then we'll engage in God's nice ceremonies. Wrong. You know, when I get things squared away, then I'll make time for worship and obedience to God's ordinances. Not so. It's baffling to me when I hear of Christians who've been Christians for some time who haven't been baptized yet. If you're a Christian and you haven't been baptized, we need to talk. Now, I know if you're a member here, we know you've been baptized. But if you're out there and you're a Christian, you haven't been baptized, you need to be baptized. Amen? God's serious about it. So here, Joshua circumcises this next generation of Israelites before battle, okay? Don't miss this, before battle. So in front of Israel stands the first major city, the seemingly impregnable double-walled city of Jericho. Verse three, so Joshua made himself flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeath Haraloth. This mass circumcision at Gibeath Haraloth, that means hill of the foreskins. I know it's gross. But this became the nickname for Gilgal. When this covenant renewal took place. Which reminds us just how foolish God's ways seem to the world. What could be more destructive from a worldly perspective than to incapacitate hundreds of thousands of men in the sight of their enemies? (laughs) They're crippled with fear, remember. The city of Jericho, all the Canaanites are crippled with fear. So you you don't put men under the knife before battle. That's a very unmilitary thing to do. (laughs) Verse seven, their children, this next generation, who, whom he raised up in their place, Joshua circumcised for they were uncircumcised because they had not circumcised them along the way. We read in verse eight that the army was disabled for some days. So needless to say, they are very vulnerable at this point. Amen? 
very vulnerable. We, we get a sense of this vulnerability from that incident in um, Genesis chapter 32, where the two sons of Jacob, um, Simeon and Levi, wipe out the entire population of men in Shechem. Now remember, Shechem was deeply attracted to Dinah, the son of Jacob, the sister of Simon and Levi. So he forced himself upon her, he raped her, and then the father of Shechem went to Jacob trying to convince him of allowing his daughter to marry her son. So the boys hear about it and they say, okay, let's go negotiate. Um, you can intermarry with us, we'll intermarry with you, said Shechem's father, we'll do trade together, you know, and so on. And the sons of Jacob said, okay, but first you have to be like one of us and bear the sign. And you're a bunch of Gentiles, so you all need to be circumcised. Well, it was a ploy. He convinced them all to be circumcised. And then Simon and Levi killed every one of them with the sword. That's how vulnerable those men were. Now, the men of Jericho might have done the same thing, witnessing this mass circumcision. But, and this is a big but, under God's divine providence, it is good to be defenseless at a time when your enemies are themselves paralyzed by fear, verse 1. The Lord has put fear in their hearts. They are petrified. They won't raise a sword to an army of incredibly vulnerable men. So notice that when the Lord commands Joshua to do this, he does it immediately, and the people of Israel willingly complied. There was no complaint, only compliance. Right? I mean, given the nature of this thing, with a flint knife, this was not something that the people would undertake lightly, amen? But they did it. They listened to their leader, Joshua, who's called by God. Verse 8, now when they had finished circumcising all the nation, they remained in their place in the camp until they were healed. Duh. <laughs> you think? So this debilit de debilitating practice is being carried out before the watching eyes of the inhabitants of Jericho. You can see them on the, on, on the uh, uh, top of the walls looking down at this thing. Applicable point. This ought to teach us to place implicit confidence in the Lord even in the midst of great danger. See, the lesson here is, is that we should be far more fearful of offending the Lord than the threat of pagans. You fear the threat of pagans? Or do you fear the Lord? Right? As I said earlier, don't bow to the mandate of culture. This is how you shall speak. 
This is how you shall think. You think biblically. You test all of that nonsense in light of the word of God and hold fast to that which is true because you're a Christian. And we need to fear offending God and not pagans. Why should we fear men? I read from Psalm 23 this morning. What are we told? That God prepares a table for us in the presence of his enemies. What are you afraid of? Everyone together. Nobody. <laughs> Be more fearful of offending holy God than those who are the enemies of God. Amen. When hearing that woke talk around here, ridiculous, lunacy on display. So Joshua, instead of readying for the attack on Jericho, stopped Israel in their tracks to attend to the rituals of circumcision and, and Passover. Passover. Verse 10, while the sons of Israel camped at Gilgal, they observed the Passover on the evening of the 14th day of the month on the desert plains of Jericho in front of their enemies. Friends, not only had no one been circumcised for 40 years, no one had celebrated Passover for 40 years. <sighs> That's heavy. So here then you have the sign of entrance into the covenant community, circumcision, right? In our case, it's baptism. And then you have the sign of, of continuation and faith, the Passover. For us, the Lord's table, which we partook of last Lord's Day. Do this in remembrance of me. So here then on the plains of Jericho, they're declaring for all the world to see the Lord is our God and he will have us as his people. Verse 11. Oh, I better get back to Joshua. I'm in Exodus still. Sorry. Don't want to hold you up. Verse 11, on the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. The manna ceased. The manna ceased on the day after they had eaten some of the produce of the land so that the sons of Israel no longer had manna, but they ate some of the yield of the land of Canaan during that year. They participate in Passover. 40 years, no Passover feast. Which means that Passover was not some empty ritual. The Lord's Supper is not some empty ritual. The Passover, friends, preached the gospel to them. Did you hear that? The Passover preached the gospel to Old Covenant Israel, reminding them of God's sovereign choice of them. Were they any better than any other nation around them? Oh, no. It demonstrated God's grace to them, gospel grace. 
It also reminded them of God's righteousness, that the, the guilty cannot be cleared. God will not wink at sin. I told you last week, right? I asked, is there anything God cannot do? Of course there is. He cannot simply wave off sin. He cannot sweep sin under the rug. There must be a penal substitute. There's only one, the Lord Jesus Christ. Propitiation must be made. God's wrath against sin and sinners must be satisfied. There's only one who does it. Christ Jesus, who is the propitiation of God. This reminded them of that. This pointed forward to Christ. Blood must be shed. Atonement must be made. God demands blood, and then he provides the substitute. Grace. The gospel. It spoke of God's faithfulness. They knew the story. Most of them that weren't there when they left Exodus, or left in the Exodus, and God said, take a lamb, slay that lamb, take its blood, paint it on the doorpost and the lintel, and then God's angel of death will pass over you. Stay in your house, don't leave. What was Rahab told to do? We'll see when we get to chapter six. Stay in your house, don't leave. Put that scarlet cord there and we'll know it's your house. Don't leave. Verse 12. The manna ceased on the day after they had eaten some of the produce of the land. They have entered the land, the good land that flows with milk and honey. It's a bountiful land. And friends, they're not tourists in this land. This is their land, says the Lord. It's theirs to enjoy, and they've already started to enjoy. Isn't it great? All right, now, that's the account. So I want to back up to verse 9, to what I believe is the heart of the text. Verse 9, today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. Egypt, that was so 40 years ago. <laughs> Do teenagers still talk like that? That is so yesterday. <laughs> I mean, most of these people weren't even there. So what then do, do they have to do anymore with Egypt? Well, it's called baggage. Baggage. They brought something of an Egyptian, Egyptian mindset with them. That is, they learned it from their parents. Okay? Their parents were taken out of Egypt, but Egypt wasn't quite taken out of them. You remember, we want to go back. Manna. I long for leeks and onions and whatever else they had on there. So they were under the heel of Egypt for 400 years. That's where they learned their idolatry. That's why Aaron gathered all the gold and formed a golden calf. And when Moses came down furious and said, what is this? What did Aaron say? You know, we just put some gold together and this popped out of the fire. <laughs> the blame game. 
there was a reproach upon Israel. Their enemies looked at them wandering about for 40 years in the wilderness and said, where is their God? Where is this God who's supposed to deliver them? Reproach. The disobedience of that generation, the generation that left Egypt, no longer characterizes this generation that has just entered Canaan. The first generation, they were not allowed in. This generation was. Israel's shame and unbelief was now a thing of the past. Today, I roll away the reproach of Egypt from you. When they entered Kadesh Barnea 40 years earlier, Moses sent in spies. Two of those spies were faithful and said, I believe God, let's take it. The rest convinced the nation, we can't go, we'll be destroyed. There are giants in the land. God's judgment, 40 years in the wilderness with reproach laid upon them. Today, I've rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. Therefore, verse 9b, the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. Now, the, the name Gilgal is similar to the Hebrew word for rolling, to, to, to roll, to, to roll away. So the, the reproach, the stigma, the shame of Egypt today has been rolled away from these people. God will now come in his grace to fill them and fit them for battle. Now their struggles aren't over. <laughs> their sin hasn't ended. We just learned that from Matthew this morning where we were reminded of that. But nevertheless, today is the day. Shame has been rolled away. Now, Gilgal, in whole Hebrew language, as you know, there were no vowels, only consonants. So this is Gilgal, it's G-L-G-L. Some teachers see an, an etymological um, connection between Gilgal and Golgotha. Golgotha. Gilgal is seen as a, is a picture, if you will, of Golgotha, where there's a rolling away of the reproach, a rolling away of the shame on Golgotha at the cross. Christ alone removes the shame who was crucified on Golgotha, the place of the cross. That's where our sin is removed. That's where the reproach is, is truly rolled away. That is where a, a love for Egypt, a love for the world, um, stigma that comes from the world is, is rolled away. Our, our loyalty to Egypt is rolled away at Golgotha because we realize we love him because he first loved us and provides, and provides the propitiation for us at Golgotha. So, friends, to close, Christ is the one alone who fulfills the whole picture of circumcision. He's the only one who takes away the reproach of the flesh. 
the reproach, the shame, the disseminated seed of the first Adam, the second Adam takes it away. He rolls it away. It's only in Christ. And he alone is the Passover lamb. He's the circumcision. He's the lamb. He's our circumciser. Amen? He circumcises the heart. He takes out a heart of stone. He replaces it with a heart of flesh. Circumcision of the heart. That's what God has always been after. That outward sign that was a symbol of this greater work in the heart. The glorious work of regeneration, new life in Christ. He's the circumciser of our heart. So this text shows us our need for him as the circumciser of our heart and as our great Passover lamb. We need the innocent, righteous blood of Christ to cover us or the reproach remains. The shame and the guilt remain. The lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world declared John the Baptist. He rolls away the reproach, the shame, and the blame, and he gives us every good thing, and that is the promised land. Canaan is a foreshadowing, we're told in the book of Hebrews, of the true promised land, heaven, in the presence of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Have you come to Golgotha? Have you come to the cross? Have you come to trust Jesus Christ alone for eternal life? If not, your hope, whatever it is, is vain, and the reproach and the shame remain. The call is to repent to change how you think about this false hope that you've built up in your own mind, this false God that you serve. Maybe it's you, you serve yourself, I don't know. It's all vain. Reproach remains. Come to Christ. Call out to Christ to save you from your sins and the reproach. And the scripture tells us that you shall be saved. Repent and believe. Come to Christ and come into the new covenant community of our Lord Jesus Christ because only he can roll away the reproach. Amen. Father, we do thank you for that glorious, certain hope. We thank you that we stand justified, guilt-free, and yet we know we still struggle with sin, but knowing that we're justified, we rejoice in the process of having been and being sanctified, we struggle, but we have hope that we will indeed be glorified. We walk by faith, one day we'll see by sight, we'll be part of the great marriage supper of the Lamb. May we rejoice and march onward carrying out that which you command us to do for your glory. We're weak to do that. So give us help this day, we pray, for Christ's sake. Amen.